0: you free the truth will set you free the truth will set you free the truth will set you free hello and welcome to the tech dirt podcast i'm mike masnick once again i wanted to thank everyone for their recent feedback and especially to those of you who have been sharing this podcast with others We've noticed a nice uptick in the number of listeners over the past few weeks, as well as seeing more of you sharing links to and praise for the podcast on places like Facebook and Twitter. That's great. Uh, Please keep it up and do more of it. Um, For many years, one of the things that we've noted on TechDirt is that anytime a particular issue becomes partisan in any way, it seems to get stupid. Uh, You suddenly lose all ability for rational debate, and it suddenly becomes an issue of blue team versus red team, and a whole lot of garbage thrown in. Any logical or rational discussion gets tossed out completely, it's just not possible because it immediately gets twisted and distorted. So it's always interesting when big ideas come along that haven't yet gone through the partisan ringer. And one that caught my attention recently is the idea of a basic income guarantee, or BIG. The idea is almost exactly what it sounds like. Countries would guarantee a certain basic level of income, which everyone gets automatically, no questions asked. It's not means-tested, and it's not welfare. This level of income should allow people to meet all basic needs that we would expect to be met today. Things like reasonable food, decent housing, access to transportation, and communications. You could, of course, earn much more than that through work, or if you found the big to be enough, you could focus on what economists have traditionally called leisure, activities that don't earn you any further income. While at first pass, this idea may seem like some form of socialism, and some have certainly called it that, the deeper you dig into the idea, the more you realize it's something different altogether. In fact, a growing number of libertarian and free market capitalism supporters have been jumping on the basic income guarantee bandwagon. And there's a third variable in all of this, which has drawn renewed interest in the concept of basic income guarantee, and that's the rise of automation. Since the beginning of the industrial age, people have certainly worried and fretted about the rise of automation and how it would lead to fewer and fewer jobs and unemployed mobs of angry people. Historically, many of these predictions have turned out not to just be wrong, but laughably so. Industrialization tended to create many new jobs in new and different areas, areas that might not have existed long before that. However, these days, some think that this time is different as the automation is now concerning computer intelligence and it's difficult to see where those new jobs may come from in that case. The idea of a basic income guarantee may certainly help to alleviate the, the expected disruption that would come from many fewer workers needed in the future. Of course, there are still a ton of questions around how this would actually work in practice, as well as what the consequences would be. Where would the funding come from? Would it create disincentive to work where such work is needed? Would it create other unintended consequences? Just recently, Albert Wenger, a partner at the venture capital firm Union Square Ventures, gave a TEDx talk in which he discussed this idea and why he thinks it's a big and important idea that is at least worth testing out. The timing of this was perfect since my co-host, Dennis Yang, and I have been having an ongoing discussion about this idea as well. Given that, we invited Albert to join us here today in the studio to continue our discussion on mic. Welcome to both of you. And let me start out by asking Albert the first question, which is, How do you think a basic income guarantee should work?
1: Well, Mike, just the way you described it, which is uh, a certain amount of money that is paid to anybody, independent of their gender, independent of their employment status, and um, maybe some age, maybe it's 15, maybe it's 16. um, And uh, that's not means tested. Uh, It's the idea of essentially decoupling uh, the Base level of what anybody might need from work and as you hinted at in your discussion the reason why that's a, a very much an important question today is because we don't exactly know what the future of work looks like
0: how do you think um, how do you think it would make sense to fund that kind of thing i know there are a couple different ideas that have been suggested um, have you thought through yeah
1: so One of the things that uh, I think is important to really get right is what the amount should be. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. there's a fairly big discrepancy between different people who propose this idea as to how big the amount needs to be. I'm sort of in the camp that it doesn't need to be very large because I believe we live in a deflationary world that's deflationary because of technology. Lots and lots of things are getting cheaper if you look at the US, for instance, since the mid 1990s, consumer durables have already been getting cheaper on a quality adjusted basis. The things that have been getting more expensive are healthcare and education. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are two areas where I'm a big believer that we are figuring out how to use technology to make those cheaper also. Mm-hmm. So once you uh, get to sort of lower amounts that are not in the many thousands or multiple thousands a month, It actually gets quite easy. Um, We have the existing household sizes uh, of the state and federal households to afford this. I do, however, also believe that um, you would want to cut existing means-tested programs. So I don't think you need a basic income guarantee and a food stamp program, for instance. Mm -hmm. Right.
0: Do do you... I, I mean, one of the concerns, certainly, about this is that if you have a basic income guarantee, that then you do inflate... The prices for other things like food and, and housing and things like that does that worry you, or do you think there are ways to deal with that
1: well i I, I think first let's lay out the argument as to why it might do that. The mm-hmm. argument why it might do that is because it might be harder to find let's say day laborers to um, harvest in the fields. Mm-hmm. Uh, so historically, I think that might have been correct. So I think if you had tried to do this in, let's say, the 70s, I think that probably would have been correct, where we were very much labor-constrained. But if you look at what's possible with automation today, it's very hard to see how that would have uh, a meaningful impact on the cost structure of existing products. Uh, I do think what it has a very meaningful impact on is people's walk-away option. So why is it that people are willing to put up with jobs at, let's say, McDonald's, where they're dispatched at all odd hours of the day, don't really make enough money for anything? They're willing to put up with it. If it is the only viable alternative that they have. And so I think that certain types of jobs would have to pay more. And if that means that um, something like uh, a Walmart or a McDonald's can't exist in exactly their present form, uh, i don 't think that 's going to turn out to make everything vastly more expensive in the end
0: <laughs> right, right right
2: so so would this in turn actually increase the incentives for automation at the
1: at the lower end of the labor market then um it might, yeah. but it wouldn't be a problem, yeah. which is very different from saying let 's raise minimum wage because if you raise minimum wage, then you are increasing the incentive for automation at the lower end and you 're not providing an alternative right
0: right right and um are you concerned, though, that it... I mean, the other big concern that's often raised is the same one that is is raised with raising the minimum wage, which is potentially creating um, disincentives for either employment on, you know, either from from the employer side or from the, the employee side.
1: Uh, I think fundamentally this is about putting people in a position where they can choose what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And I think... Um, as the economy goes forward, we will have more and more things that are unpaid and yet people should be doing. Right. Uh, so we have a lot of these today. So um, taking care of an elderly parent is unpaid. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will have more elderly parents going forward. Right. Um, teaching your children, your own children, is unpaid. We will have more need to educate our children going forward. Um, cleaning up the environment is unpaid. We will have a greater need to clean up the environment. Creating free online courseware is unpaid. Um, We have more of a need to do this. So uh, one thing that I think uh, gets confused a lot here is that people say, oh, we will always think of new things to do. Absolutely, we will always think of new things to do. That's not the question. The question isn't, are humans creative and will find new and interesting things to do? The question is, will they get paid for those new and interesting things? And one has to clearly separate those two questions. And what determines whether or not you can get paid for something is the question of what's the next best alternative Mm -hmm. to you doing that. And as long as the next best alternative to you doing that is maybe somebody somewhere else in the world doing it who is in a more desperate situation or a machine doing it at a much lower cost that is what's going to dictate the amount of wage that you will be able to uh, obtain for that
0: do you do you think that um, that you need to have a certain level of automation in place already for it to work i know you know we said it may increase the incentives for automating at the low end but you know is there is there a sort of a, you know, I'm I'm kind of picturing this spectrum in terms of, you know, where you can do that. You know, do you think you could do that shift today, or do you think there needs to be greater automation first? I definitely
1: think we could do it today. I Mm -hmm. think that the statistics show that we have reached that level already. Uh, One of my favorite graphs is a graph that shows GDP versus wage. And what that graph shows is that we've had GDP growth for the last 15 plus years, but we've had it without wage growth. So I think we've Mm -hmm. already reached that turning point, uh, at least in the, in the developed countries.
0: How much, um, I mean, there's, there's this other argument, and this is maybe just sort of more of a social argument. You know, there are people who believe that, you know, people's identities are sort of so tied up in, in their, in their job and in their profession. Um, you know, how much of a social shift do you think that this creates,
1: I think it's a fundamental rethinking and it's not something we could absorb as a society overnight without a lot of discussion. Uh, We've grown up to think of ourselves and our value through the jobs that we do. Um, And uh, it's one of the reasons why we have this strange scenario where uh, a lot of people are working ever harder even though... um, you know, we've made all this productivity progress. So we have this sort of bifurcation where some people are working crazy long hours um, because we've so much started to define ourselves through the things we do, through the work that we do. And we've sort of lost track of what you said earlier, of leisure. There's a wonderful book I just finished reading called uh, How Much Is Enough mm-hmm. uh, by Robert and Edward Sidelski, which sort of traces the history um, of thinking of the question of what is the good life and what does it mean to lead a good life and where where did we sort of suddenly determine that leading a good life means that even your leisure needs to be uh, conducted with as much equipment as possible um, <laughs> <laughs> and as quickly as possible right. and and that's a really important i think um,
0: productivity and leisure seems yeah like no absolutely
1: <laughs> uh and and so The thing that fascinates me personally is to draw an even longer arc of human history, which is, uh, prior to agriculture, we were hunter-gatherers. And there are a few hunter-gatherer societies left around today. Um, A friend of mine, Josh Furr, is studying the pygmies, um, who still are what's called an immediate return uh, hunter-gatherer society. Immediate return means they don't really engage in any kind of storage. Uh, And what's interesting is that they live in sort of a state of abundance, because um, they work three hours a day, and the rest of the time they have fun to goof off. Um, And um, what I believe is that we have it within our means to kind of return to that type of state. Um, What intervened were thousands of years of agriculture and industry that were dominated by scarcity. And so much of our thinking is dominated by this kind of scarcity thinking that it's very hard for us as individuals or society to embrace the fact that we might actually be able to reenter a state of abundance. It seems so um, foreign to us as a concept. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and I think it's really important for each individual to ask themselves this question. This is not just a social question. The question of what is enough and could I live a life of abundance today, I think is highly relevant to many of us working in tech. Um, I think it's an important personal question.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, right? Because, you know, you look back at, um, you know, people like like um, uh, Keynes, you know, predicted right, that, that people would be living a life of much more leisure because of greater and greater productivity, and that's not the way it turned out. So you know, one of the things that really sort of has struck me about this concept of the basic income guarantee is that it, it effectively, you know, it, it does kind of, it forces you to shift your thinking on these things, whereas, you know, the way that we are today, so much of it is definitely just driven by this idea of, you know, ever-increasing productivity, um, which often means, you know, just more and more work, even when you can do more, you know, get more done in a short amount of time, thanks to technology. Um, so it's, it's really interesting to me that beyond just, um, you know, a, a change in the way that the society functions, it does sort of force a change in the way that we look at the way society works and the way, jobs work and and all of that that kind of thing so i you know because when there are these sort of big ideas you know one of the issues for me is that it's always you know those things sound great in theory but there's so much history that you know how do you get to that point whereas this is this is one that you know it seems like you could you can see a path to it actually working because the change itself shifts the way people think about things in a way that that you know, uh that that benefits the idea itself.
2: Yeah, I mean I I think there's so many things about our society that are built around distributing goods based on a scarce economy. Yeah. That like we're just not used to thinking of like what would happen like if things were truly abundant. And for me, one of the biggest, like the easiest ways I was able to kind of comprehend what we're moving towards is actually looking towards science fiction. And you know, Gene Roddenberry did a great job in, in Star Trek where, you know, imagine you had essentially a machine that, you know, I think it was, you can make anything you wanted in infinite quantities. And at that point, you know, like, what does society look like when you don't need even currency or money to distribute scarce goods when everything is abundant?
0: Yeah, and that's, you know, I mean, to some extent, you know, that's been what we've talked about on TechDirt for, you know, 15 years or more, which is, you know, what started out as very much focused on, you know, digital files, right? Because that was the thing that happened first, and mainly music initially. Um, you know, this discussion about what happens when all of a sudden those things are effectively infinite. They're there, and and yet they were built on a world of scarcity.
1: And, and that, to me, is the sort of critical factor here. Is is it's digital technology that has brought us online already into a world of abundance. So we can already see what a world of abundance looks like mm-hmm. online. Yeah. Uh, and now what's happening is that we're slowly using this to what we can do with bits to influence what we can do with atoms. Um, Uh, The the Keynes essay is called The Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in the Sidelsky book, there's an interesting chapter about kind of what went wrong. And what they do, which is, I think, very interesting, is they draw a differentiation between needs and wants. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that we have come to conflate needs and wants, and that we're defining everything in wants, and that we have a circular definition. Well, if people are buying it, that means they (laughs) want it, that means it must be good for them. And that becomes entirely circular. and, (laughs) and, And that's why I have... Many people that I know who've made extraordinary amounts of money uh, in tech and um, still are not happy, and yeah. still don't seem satisfied, and still don't, and still want more um, because we've created this sort of self-referential culture of more.
0: Yeah, yeah. The, um, the Sadelsky stuff is really interesting. I just actually just heard a podcast, uh, with, with one of them, I forget which one, (laughs) um, uh, discussing, discussing the book. And I I think it was that book. Um, and, and some of these ideas and it's, you know, but when I was listening to him talk about it, um, you know, I, I felt like the way, at least the way he described it. And so I, and I haven't read the book, um, it felt like he was sort of you know swimming against the tide almost, and, and sort of hoping for changes that I wasn't. I wasn't quite sure how they could possibly happen. Um, yeah, I, have,
1: I I just finished it on vacation, and I'm, I'm planning to write a little review of it. I don't agree with all of the book, no. but um, but I do agree with this basic notion that um, we have started to confuse needs and wants, and that. Part of what Basic Income Guarantee is about is to try and refocus people on needs and on what they can do and the lives they can live when their basic needs are met. Uh, And I believe that there are a great many people who would lead different lives uh, if this were available and that many good things for humanity would come out of people leading different lives, working on things that they were fundamentally excited about as opposed to just figuring out how they're going to pay the next rent check or how they're going to pay the next um, for the next meal.
0: And so do you think, and I think you had mentioned this in, in the TEDx presentation that you did, um, does it you know, one of the ideas is to sort of you know find a space where we could test this out. You know, a city, a, a small country, or a, you know, an area, in a... and
1: that's what's happening. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting new experiments being run. Most of them in developing countries, where uh, a relatively small amount per day basically constitutes a basic income for somebody. And uh, a lot of that work has not yet been published, but but the results look very promising.
0: Yeah, I mean, it would definitely be be interesting to see. I mean, there have been other studies too about. You know, because, uh, you know, if you go back to sort of the, the, you know, classical view of economics, um, which, you know, often is wrong, <laughs> um, you know, very much based on scarcity, this idea that, you know, if you pay people more, that you'll get more productivity out of them tends not to be true, Um or or so the sorry the classical view is that if you pay them more you'll get more productivity and then the the what the studies have shown and a whole bunch of them now at this point have shown that that doesn't actually work out that sort of once people hit a certain level um which is you know i guess to them is it's not the basic income but it's their what they sort of feel comfortable at then their productivity just you know does begin to drop off um and i and i you know well i almost wonder if you know, how do you, if if there are ways to handle that, right? I mean, so basic income guarantee is sort of just hits at a certain flat level across the board. Um, You
1: a question that people often bring up is they mm -hmm. say, well, how can you pay everybody the same? Some people live in New York, some people live in Detroit. Um, I think a big part of this is that uh, if you wanted to move to Detroit today and you lived in New York, you really couldn't unless you already have uh, a job lined up when you get there or you have accumulated wealth that lets you do that. Most people are in neither camp. And so we're creating these sort of self-proliferating circles where people live in an area and they can't actually go to an area that would be cheaper. Uh, and that kind of rebalancing could occur much more naturally uh, under a system of, of, of basic income. One other objection that people do bring up is this whole idea that, you know, um, people really won't know what to do with themselves. And as a result, (laughs) they'll resort to drugs and alcohol. Um, And I definitely think that we will need to educate people what it means um, and how to live and um, what all the things are they could work on. Uh, Without a doubt, we have educated people for a very long time to the exact opposite, which is you have to find a job and you have to develop exactly right. these skills. And right. and this is right. legitimate and that's the only way to, to to earn a living. And what's interesting, though, is that the um, a lot of these uh, sort of research projects that have been run, uh, they produce data that shows that people tend to not suddenly go and say, okay, now I'm just going to be drunk every day. <laughs>
0: well, I mean, I think, you know, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's so many different things that can be done with free time today that um you know that don't involve alcohol and drugs uh i mean i would love to have more free time <laughs> no it's
1: right it, it, except that what's interesting today is that the people who do have jobs uh-huh. they tend to spend their leisure mostly on just lean back consumption um yeah. and um very little of it is the kind of leisure that i think um, people had in mind historically when they thought about more leisure, which is activities like gardening or right. any kind of activity that in fact requires a certain skill that you need to first develop. Uh, for instance, I love sailing. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes a lot of skill to sail a boat. Um, it's a wonderful leisure activity, but it's a very different leisure activity from just sitting back and watching television. Sure. Right. So, so it's not just time, but
2: also energy that we're spending in work that we can then spend in leisure as well. Exactly, okay,
1: so. yeah. and 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 a lot of that energy will also be spent on you know as I said earlier on the kind of activities that we really need more of.
0: Right. Well, so, what do you mean by that? Let me well, you the-
1: meaning you know things like parenting or things mm-hmm. like taking care of uh, people who are sick or cleaning up the environment yeah. or creating okay. high quality educational content, things that are unpaid and. Um, will continue to be unpaid, mm-hmm. uh, but that people would like to do. They would like to right. be able to be in a position to work on them instead of...
0: So there's, I mean, it's kind of interesting because for this to work, the other sort of mindset shift that's needed is to recognize that, you know, to and, and there are a lot of other reasons to, to do this, but to get past the, the concept of thinking about things like GDP... And and yeah, there
1: there, there are a couple of big things I think you need to get past. Mm -hmm. One is you need to get past GDP as sort of the measure of the economy. Right. Um, That's number one. And and we need to get past GDP as the measure of the economy because we're making stuff free. And so tracking it via GDP is completely useless. Right. the other thing you need to get past, though, I think is a certain amount of distributional anxiety. So, this whole idea well, why should this person get any money? What have they yeah. done to deserve this? Yeah. Uh, which I think is very deeply ingrained, sort of, in the American psyche, yeah, more absolutely. so than in the European yeah. um, psyche, which is this idea well, why should this person be getting any money? Uh, The the, the funny irony here is that the one state in the US that has this is Alaska. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, And they have it because of the oil um, fund. So uh, it's slightly ironic because we associate that with being a sort of a conservative state. Right. But I do think that's an anxiety that people have is sort of this idea, well, why should my taxes, if I'm making a lot of money, go and support everybody else? Now, the reality is, that's already how it works today. It's just cloaked. So I pay taxes today and then we have a food stamp program and we have public housing and we have all sorts of other things. Most of these programs have all sorts of inefficiencies, allocational inefficiencies that they introduce. And so what's interesting about this idea in my mind is that it could appeal, once people kind of get over the hump of saying, okay, this is redistributional, yes. Once people get over that hump, it could have a very broad appeal.
0: Right, um, do you do you worry about it acting as um, potentially a disincentive? I mean, right. So you in, invest in in startups that are doing innovative things. Do you worry that this scares off entrepreneurs or innovators away from from building the next big thing?
1: In in what way?
0: Um, just because you know they can now go and. Spend more time educating or taking care of a parent, or or yeah. Something I mean, I think
1: very few people who start companies start them exclusively because they think it's a way to really um, make a lot of money. Um, most people who start companies do it because there's something that they have kind of a burning desire to see exist in the world um you know they set out to find a particular product and found the existing products wanting and so they want to create a better version of it right. um so i i'm not at all worried that suddenly somehow we'll <laughs> all turn into slackers and we'll all just be lying on the beach drinking pina coladas uh, i think there are tons of people who are intrinsically motivated to want to create something uh and on top of that in this world that Reinvision with a basic income, you still can have a Mark Zuckerberg or, right. uh, or you know, um, nothing says that you can't make a lot of money by creating a
0: right. company. And and there's actually, I mean, the the counter argument to my own argument is, <laughs> is uh, um, you know, that it also is much less risk for those people, right? So the person who has a great idea doesn't have to worry about leaving their job and having no income to then, or having to first raise money from people like you before they can go.
1: which I think will importantly vastly increase the pool of people who can start companies. Uh, uh, I think it's easy to forget that a lot of people who start companies today come from relatively well-off families where they can take that risk of not finding a job. Uh, One other thing that we hadn't talked about before is you know one the area where the, having a walk away option is really important is in sort of family relationships so yeah. um, you know women or men who suffer from domestic abuse uh, mostly women often can't leave because um, they're not the breadwinner and so if they were to leave they would not be you know in a, they would be in a terrible economic situation so I think the sort of aspect of how much more liberty this creates for individuals to live the lives they want to live
0: yeah.
1: uh, and to work on the things they want to work on, including on startups, uh, I think is super important and, and I believe would unleash a lot of new innovation and a lot of new interesting things that would get created.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think that's why, I mean, to some extent, as I mentioned in the opening, like, um, you know, when I, when I, the very first time I heard about this idea... Um, You know, I I thought it was the kind of thing that you know sort of you know on the libertarian side people would would hate, and yet I'm seeing lots of of libertarian folks who who are really you know warming to the idea quite a bit, Um, and I find that really interesting because you know I think their sort of natural inclination is certainly to be against um, you know redistribution, but they're recognizing that it does create you know, more freedom, uh, which is something that they tend to, it's listen, in the name. Is, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so it's, you know, I, that it's, it's one of those ideas that, that strikes me as, as really interesting. I do, you know, I, I, um, I, I mean, how much political feasibility do you think there is, or?
1: I think these are the kind of ideas, um, like other really big ideas, let's say democracy that, I don't think you can assume are going to happen very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, we took a lot of wrong turns along the way to get to properly working democracies, and, and, arguably, we're there and, 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 and arguably we have, you know, introduced a new set of problems. So, yeah. Yeah. so, but what I like about ideas is that once they are in the world and once people start batting them around, even if they get shut down for a while, they have this tendency to come back and. Um, The basic income guarantee is one of those examples. It's an idea that has been around for several decades as far back as the 60s. So uh, I'm under no illusion that we're going to get this tomorrow, but I think um, the fact that more attention is being paid to it, uh, not just in the US, but lots of countries around the world where... Um, In some European countries, uh, some of the green parties have put this on their official party program. There's a referendum in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Um, There's just a lot of activity. And again, it may not happen this time around, but you need these kind of uh, explorations Mm -hmm. to eventually um, have a big idea become a reality.
0: Yeah, and I I think it would be interesting, too, because with... You know, as with anything, right? I mean, as in the world of startups and of innovation, you'll see a lot of experiments, and and people will adapt and adjust and innovate based on on the you know real world results of how those work. And I think it you know it only becomes a more interesting idea over time. And so, it's you know it's something that that I think is is definitely really compelling, um, and certainly worth thinking about. Um, and figuring out how, how it would work I, i'm still you know i still wonder about about some of the consequences of how it how it works out but you know the more i think about it uh, the more sort of deeply ingrained it, it keeps digging into my brain is something that you know wait this really really could make sense yeah, it's a very powerful idea you know? um,
1: of a different way of organizing uh, how the economy works
0: yeah, absolutely. So um, I think we're we're gonna wrap up. And normally, what we do is, if if uh, you have any final thoughts, something to to leave our listeners with on on this particular idea, um, I, don't, I don't know if you. <laughs> yeah, I think just ask
1: yourself what you would do in your life if you didn't have to work to meet your basic needs.
0: Yeah, and and think about. How that changes so many other things, and potentially in really powerful ways. I think it's it's really interesting. I think it's something that we should we should you know I think a lot of people should be thinking about, and and I know that uh, I'm certainly going to be thinking about a lot more, and and I know that I'm going to have a lot more questions on it. So I think maybe we'll have you back again. Uh, that would be great. Sometime. In fact, and I'm
1: we'll... going back to New York to attend the uh, North American Basic Income Congress. Ah,
0: excellent. So excellent timing and then so uh yeah we'll 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 keep this conversation going because i think there's some really interesting ideas here that that are absolutely worth exploring so thanks for joining us my pleasure very very interesting conversation and we will be back next week on the tech podcast it's been said that the first
2: casualty of war is truth and i'm inclined to agree listen we live in an age of instant information so isn't it strange that things and away from us. Governments think we need to gain their trust, but it's the other way around. Just take a look. Nothing tells us more than more data does, so it's important it's all available to us. Plus, put up for debate and looked at by the public's gaze, because there's a lot more to do.